Tonight's talk is about Anicca. I remember when I was in eighth grade in science class, one day the teacher said something that struck me very profoundly. He said, the only thing constant is change. Change is the only thing that doesn't change. And I remember being struck deeply with these words that I somehow recognized them as a profound and shattering truth. I don't even remember uh, what the science teacher looks like. I just remember where I was standing in the room when he said those words. I was so struck by them. What I didn't know at the time was that 2,500 years earlier, the Buddha had taught this same information as a key point for us to understand as we travel the path of liberation. So now over uh, 20 years, many years, 30 years, 35 years, (laughs) a long time later, I um, recognize that that science teachers' comments express one of the basic principles of the Buddhist understanding of life. And that's known in Pali as anicca, usually translated into English as impermanence. As I said in a talk I gave two weeks ago, anicca is one of what are known in Buddhist thought as the three characteristics of reality, or the three marks of reality, or the three marks of existence. So there's anicca, or impermanence, There's dukkha, uh, usually translated as suffering or unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, which we've also talked about, uh, selflessness or no self. Anicca is the most important thing we can understand about life because the other two marks of of life, uh, the other two characteristics, flow out of an understanding of anicca. From anicca, we see dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of this mundane world, how we suffer by trying to find happiness through things that change. Also, from anicca, we understand anatta, the self as a process rather than as some permanent entity to cling to. But tonight, I will focus then on anicca. In the Sutra on the Perception of Impermanence in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha speaks about the the importance of understanding anicca. He addresses the bhikkhus, or the monks, but we'll call you all bhikkhus for tonight. Bhikkhus, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sensual lust, it eliminates all lust for existence, It eliminates all ignorance. It uproots all conceit. I am. Just as bhikkhus in the autumn, when the sky is clear and cloudless, the sun ascending in the sky dispels all darkness from space as it shines and beams and radiates. So too, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, 
It eliminates all sensual lust. It eliminates all lust for existence. It eliminates all ignorance. It uproots all conceit. I am. How well do we really understand Anicca? Impermanence. It means that things change. And you may think to yourself, well, I know that. Everyone knows that. If you ask the average person, do things change? They'll usually say yes. In fact, I tried this experiment once. I went around and asked people, do things change? And nobody had any real problem with agreeing that things change. So I upped the ante a little bit. I said, everything? Does everything change? This is where people began to disagree. Uh, Some people insisted that uh, there are some things that don't change. Others said that, um, a few people agreed that everything changes. One person said 95% of things change. (laughs) And then there were a few other people who just looked at me like I was weird. (laughs) Didn't know what to make of the question. So most people um, do agree, however, that change, change happens, even if they don't agree on how much. One time I was standing in a supermarket line and I saw a National Enquirer magazine and it had um, on the front cover, it was quoting about a book called The Happy Person. And since I'm always interested in what the mainstream is thinking about happiness, um, I flipped through it. And uh, it turns out that in this book, the author lists six realities we need to understand in order to reduce stress. And number six is things are bound to change. He advised, trying to hold on the status quo is particularly stressful these days when the world is changing more rapidly than ever. So it's not exactly Buddhist thought, but it does seem that the mainstream is catching on also. But we're going to need a bit deeper understanding than this. Mu Song, one of the um, co-directors of the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, says, The existentially painful human condition is a case of misperception on the part of the perceiver and leads to clinging to things that basically have the nature of impermanence. The cure, then, is to find the corrective lens through which to perceive the world without distortion. So meditation is that corrective lens for perceiving the world without distortion, seeing life as it is so that we can make peace with it, moving from ignorance about change to a deep understanding of impermanence. So most of us, until we make a thorough investigation of the matter, have no idea of the depth and breadth of this truth of change. Once we investigate, however, we see that everything is in a constant state of flux. The Buddha said, Sabe Sankara Anicca, the entire universe is fluid. In meditation, we contact our own experience of our mind and body to see the truth of this reality within ourselves. Uba Kin, 
a meditation master from before, said, just a look, just a look into oneself, and there it is, anicca. So think about your last sitting. Perhaps your mind was in a very constant state of change. Or the breath. The breath is constantly changing from one moment to the next. Or a pain in the knee if you look deeply. Just changing sensation. Or the day has passed. Where is lunch? Where is breakfast? Where's that last sitting? Where's the last moment? Everything flows constantly. So on the physical level, even as I sit here, my body is disintegrating and changing. They say that, you know, all our cells are continually replacing themselves. And every seven years, our body is is totally changed. All the cells have totally changed. As we're sitting here, galaxies are born and galaxies die. Molecules are constantly in a state of agitation. Rocks crumble. Everything is really a process, a verb, an event, a fluidity. In a well-known quote, the Buddha himself described Anicca poetically by saying, Thus shall you think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. Everything is here and gone, just like that arises and passes away like a bubble in a stream or a flash of lightning. There's another translation of Anicca that I found not enduring. And I like this translation because it captures the fleeting quality of life that nothing lasts. Ajahn Chah, the Thai master that a number of us have mentioned before, translates Anicca as uncertainty. And I like this too because it catches the flavor of instability of phenomena, that you can't count on phenomena because of Anicca, that life doesn't follow our wishes, that it flows on. So the average American and the Buddha might both agree on that things change, but they might disagree on how fast things are changing. A Harper's Index, a polling um, organization, once asked people to estimate the number of seconds that the present lasts. (laughs) And the consensus was that the present lasts three seconds. Now, most of us here would say, That's a bit long. You know, we might say the present is that, right? The Buddha was even more refined. He said that there are 17 trillion mind moments in a second. 
So his presence just a little bit shorter. <laughs> 17 trillion mind moments in a second. That's a lot of change. I haven't personally verified the 17 trillion mind moments in a second, but I have seen that if we pay close, atten- close attention, we are astounded at the rate of change. I like to read uh, new physics. I like to read the books that come out um, that are like new physics for lay people. Um, like the Dancing Wooly Masters is one that was well known. And I just read another one um, in the last few weeks on the new um, understanding of the universe uh, called string theory. And the, the real truth of the matter is, even though it was written for a lay person, and I love these things, I got it like a third through when I just totally lost. I couldn't even follow it anymore. But I love to read these books because they, they kind of blow my mind. You know, I read them and I just go, whoa. And um, it's similar to meditation, you know, in the way that it just opens up our minds to new understandings and to understanding that life isn't like it seems on the surface. And it's very different when we look closely. So another aspect of anicca, um, beyond that things change a lot, is that because things change a lot, they're not as solid and permanent as we like to think that they are. A quote that I enjoyed from the Dancing Wooly Masters is about um, the supposed solidity of matter. Most of us know from um, probably eighth grade science <laughs> that, that you know we have atoms, right? The universe is made up of atoms, and each atom has a nucleus, and then it has electrons that go around the nucleus. It says, it would be impossible to see the nucleus of an atom the size of a grape be too small. In fact, to see the nucleus of an atom, the atom would have to be as high as a 14-story building. And the atom um, and the nucleus of an atom as big as a 14-story building. So imagine a 14-story building here. The nucleus would be the size of a grain of salt. And the electrons would be the size of a dust particle. So you have a 14-story building here, and the only matter in it is a grain of salt and some dust particles. And the rest is space, right? And then they go on to explain, the author goes on to explain that these electrons, that we call electrons, are other subatomic particles, aren't even really things. They're tendencies to exist. That's what they call them. So what happened to solidity, you know? (laughs) Here we think an atom is a real thing and that we're made up of atoms and they're real things and they're solid. They're mostly space. So things aren't, when you look really closely, things aren't as concrete as they seem to be. So why don't we get that? Why don't we get impermanence? Why don't we see this? Well, in the case of the electrons, they move so fast that there's the appearance of Solidity, it's kind of like if I take this stick and I move it really fast, like if it had fire on it, you would see a circle, right? And you would think that circle was real because of the speed which which things are moving. So the speed of the electrons creates this illusion of permanency. 
the same thing happens with us, with consciousness, for example. We think that our consciousness is something, and it's ours, and it's permanent. When you observe very closely with a very well-focused mind, you see that consciousness is arising and passing away in every moment. But it happens so fast that it seems permanent. So the speed of change sometimes gives the illusion of permanency. Concentration in meditation really helps us because it's like it slows things down. It's like our mind can become like a microscope and we can see um, more clearly the real nature of these minds and bodies. I think we don't always understand the usefulness of concentration. Sometimes we uh, just like it. It's pleasant, so we, so we use it for the pleasantness just to enjoy it. Or other times we don't take very good care of it because we don't understand. Now, like silence and the way that we set up this place is set up to help concentration grow so that we can use that concentration to see very clearly the nature of the mind and body. That corrective lens, it's that corrective lens. Another reason why we don't understand impermanence or we don't see it clearly is because we live in the world of concepts. And I believe Joseph talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You know, we live in the world of our ideas about things. And our ideas about things are very fixed, very solid. Now, concepts are useful. I'm not saying we should throw out concepts because, you know, when you come up to door, it's useful to know what it is. Without having to figure it out each time, it's useful to know how to turn a door. And having, you know, concepts are what get us through um, a day, and it's useful. But the problem with concepts is that in their efficiency to understand the world, they leave out a lot of information. They miss going into greater depth. And so meditation is enlightening because we get to go to that greater depth that we don't usually go to. So, for example, headache. We think a headache is something, you know, if, you, if the unenlightened or a non-yogi person thinks a headache is a thing, right? I have a headache. I have a headache. When we go and we look carefully at a headache, we see that it's a swirling, changing, pulsing uh, mass of sensations that just keeps changing. So the concept headache... It's rather fixed and static. The direct experience of headache is constantly changing. So with meditation, we get up close to really see what's going on. I just have to tell you one other physics story <laughs> in this last book that I was reading. So we usually think of the world as having three dimensions, right, plus time. So there's up and down, you know, this way and this way, and time, if you want to count that, that's a fourth dimension, right? And that's how we locate things. In this book, they say that um, every point in space-time has has 10 or 11 folded dimensions within it. (laughs) 
It's pretty wild. And then they say that they're so small, though, that you can't see them, and that they can now measure to a billionth of a billionth of a meter. Uh, They have instruments that can measure to a billionth of a billionth of a meter, but these dimensions are smaller than that. Wow. (laughs) So the world isn't exactly like it appears, is it? So we put so much emphasis in meditation on um, directly experiencing sensations, sense contact, because we want to go deeper than the fixed level of concept to the level of change and to be with that process. Now, we don't always get excited about the truth of impermanence. In fact, um, sometimes uh, we really don't want to see this. Uh, There's a book called Zen Seeds by a female Japanese... um, I've lost her name here. Oh, here it is. Shundo Oyama. It's called Sensei. She says, we make every effort to keep things as they are because human beings lament transience. Yet no matter how we grieve or protest, there is no way to impede the flow of anything. Ajahn Chah is pretty funny about this. He says, people say Ajahn Chah only talks about not certain. They get fed up with hearing this and they run away from me. We went to listen to Ajahn Chah teach, and all he talked about was not certain. They can't bear to hear the same old thing anymore, so they leave. I guess they are going to look for some place where things will be certain. (laughs) But they'll come back. (laughs) We, We don't want things to be uncertain. You know, as humans, we crave um, security. We look for security and try to control change. And we don't want to accept that we can't control life, that it keeps flowing. Sometimes we'll see in our practice how we try to impede the flow of change moment by moment with grasping and aversion, these two uh, control strategies we have to try to deal with change, to try to control change. And this is the way we live a lot of our lives. It's very deeply conditioned. It's what happens when we don't understand anicca, that we're very restless with trying to control change. You know, we live in our automatic conditioning of grasping and aversion. It's not a lot of room for freedom in this scenario. And it also means that we suffer deeply in life because grasping and aversion are states of suffering. And they cut us off. They make us feel separate and agitated, isolated and alone. And ultimately, we find that if we try to find happiness through this control, we're really building our castle of happiness on a pile of quicksand. 
The Buddha said, all conditioned things are unstable, impermanent, fragile in essence as an unbaked pot, like something borrowed or a city founded on sand. They last a short while only. They are inevitably destroyed, like plaster washed off in the rains, like the sandy bank of a river, they are conditioned, and their true nature is frail. They are like the flame of a lamp, which rises suddenly and as soon goes out. They have no power of endurance, like the wind, or like foam, unsubstantial, essentially feeble. Some people may think that this sounds a bit like dismal news. (laughs) But the Buddha really uh, had good news about Anicca because he said that if we really understand Anicca deeply, that's a way to freedom. So seeing Anicca in all its depth and breadth is what leads us to liberation from suffering, and not seeing it is what causes suffering. In the Dhammapada, he says, Everything changes. Nothing stays the same. Having gained this awareness, one is freed from suffering. This is the way of purification. All conditioned things are subject to change. Having fully learned this insight, one is freed from suffering. This is the way of purification. So the Buddha is saying that there's another way to live, a way to live in harmony with the flow of change instead of resisting it. But the only way out is through. We must go deeply into the nature of change and see it clearly. And anicca is a doorway to liberation because when we understand change deeply, we see that our reactivity is useless. If change is constant, how can grasping and aversion lead to peace? We see that our attempts to control cause us suffering. And when we deeply understand change, and when we accept the inevitable flow of life, we find that we contact deeper and deeper levels of peace. We stop struggling to make ourselves happy, and therefore we find happiness. We stop looking for peace by controlling things and wind up more peaceful. It's kind of paradoxical. We find freedom and joy that comes in being open to the world and in not resisting the flow. We begin to live in harmony with the flow of life. Alan Watts calls this living with the wisdom of insecurity. No lasting security in this world. Everything changes, so nothing can offer us the solidity and the dependability that we crave. But it's really a relief to realize this because it means that we can stop this hard work of trying to control change, this relentless task of reacting to change. 
a story from a book um, written uh, by Ajahn Chah. The previous supreme patriarch of the monastic order once went on a tour of China where someone offered him a very beautiful teacup. It was unlike anything he'd ever seen. He thought, oh, the, tea- the people here have real faith in me to offer me this beautiful teacup. And as soon as the teacup was in his hand, immediately he was suffering. Where should I put it? Where is it safe to keep it? He couldn't stop worrying it would break. Before he had that teacup, he was fine. Once he had it, he wanted to show it off to the people back home in Thailand. He put it in his bag and kept telling everyone to watch out that the teacup didn't get broken. Hey, careful, please. Everywhere he was watching out for it. He had nothing but suffering. Before, the suffering didn't exist, but now there was a heaviness of having the teacup. So he boarded his plane back to Thailand. When he arrived, he warned the novices, Be careful, don't let the teacup break. You lay people, watch out. There's something fragile here. This went on all the time, suffering because of attachment to the cup. Finally, one day, a long time later, a novice picked it up and it slipped from his hand and broke. What relief the Supreme Patriarch felt. Ah, I am free, suffering all these years. kind of how we live uh, life, like taking care of the teacup. Understanding Nietzsche is knowing that the teacup is already broken. So the Buddha told us to see things as they are and then let go of our clinging to them, to see things as impermanent and to let go. Living in this way does involve a tremendous amount of letting go. Our self-image, the way we've structured the world, our, self, our worldview all have to die, undergo a radical change. It's not always an easy process. We often feel like we're losing something. And perhaps we are. Perhaps we're losing our illusion, but it's still something. We can feel pretty attached to our illusions. I've gone through periods of practice where it seems like life is really just about loss and how to um, work with that. Not big losses, just every moment a loss. We often find that of these three characteristics that we'll spend periods of time where one of them will really be in the forefront, not just on um, retreat, but in our lives too. And so when we're really uh, seeing impermanence, it may also seem that we're seeing loss, lots of loss. Every moment arises and passing away. So sometimes our reaction at first to this will be fear. You know, we had counted on things, and suddenly you can't count on things anymore. I remember a period of practice I went through here in my earlier years where every moment just slipping away, slipping away. It was just loss, loss, loss. And I was very frightened. I would wake up in the morning uh, for like a month, and my first note, I, I I did noting very consistently, my first note was fear for like a month every day. 
Now this movement of life, everything arising, passing away, keeps bringing us up against the unknown. We're not always comfortable coming up continually against the unknown. It can bring up fear. But if we stay with it, we come to a place of deep poignancy and greater love for this world. I mean, think about it. If you knew that this was your last day, how would you experience life? Wouldn't it just break your heart? We would understand it's all borrowed, nothing guaranteed. And understanding this, a great compassion develops. Understanding a Nietzsche doesn't mean that we disconnect. It means that we love even knowing that we have to let go. Pablo Neruda. We, the mortals, touch the metals, the wind, the ocean shores, the stones, knowing they will go on inert or burning. And I was discovering naming all these things. It was my destiny to love and say goodbye. I like this poem because there's that flavor of deeply um, experiencing life and connecting and yet knowing that we must let go, that we have to say goodbye over and over. So through this understanding of Anicca and loving the world as it is, I think we develop a very mature love of the world, one that acknowledges that everything ends that we have to say goodbye. I think to understand Anicca, we have to see it over and over again. You know, we have to notice our reactivity to change over and over again until it really sinks in. It's like we have to go through it. We have to burn it out uh, until we start to learn to quit expecting life to live up to our unrealistic expectations. Charlotte Jokobeck, the Zen master, says, practice has to be a process of endless disappointment. We have to see that everything we demand and even get eventually disappoints us. This discovery is our teacher. Trungpa Rinpoche says, disappointment is basic intelligence. (laughs) I think he's pointing to the same thing, that we have to to see over and over again that happiness isn't about getting something and holding on to it because it's not going to stay. It's going to disappoint us. During um, the the first uh, time I sat here, the three-month course, I actually wound up staying about five months. I went through this period where I was trying to figure out what it was in life that was going to do it for me, make me happy, that was going to permanently make me happy. And my mind, you know, was on this theme for about a month. 
It was actually about the same time all that fear was coming up, too. And, um, you know, I wasn't trying to think about it, but I kept trying to think, oh, you know, how can I be happy in life? And I would come up with all these scenarios. It's like, well, maybe if I got, if I lived in a nice little cabin by myself in the mountains, that would really be nice. And then I'd think, oh, but I might get a little lonely. And then I think, well, maybe living with a community would be great. That would make me feel happy. And then I thought, oh, but people would probably drive me crazy. And then I thought, well, maybe I should have children. Oh, but that's so much responsibility. And this went on for like a month, you know. I was just like trying to figure out what was going to make me happy. And everything came up disappointing. You know, it wasn't going to do it. And it was a time of great um, fear because I really was hoping there was going to be something that was really going to do it. And finally, at one point, after about a month of this, I went into an interview um, one afternoon with Sharon Salzberg, and I said, Sharon, um, it doesn't seem like anything's really going to do it. And she said, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Right. (laughs) And I said, so I guess our job, my job, is just to be, learn to be okay with each moment. She said, yep. (laughs) And uh, um, the fear left. I mean, it really left that afternoon. Because I was starting to put my faith in something that had some possibility of working out. You know, that ability to learn to be okay with each moment rather than trying to find some permanent solution that was going to do it. So... We have to be disappointed over and over again to learn this. So what are some ways to, to learn to let go? Ajahn Chagin, he says, just say uncertain. If it's, if it's pleasant, say uncertain. If it's unpleasant, say uncertain. Just notice beginning, ending. There you are, impermanence, impermanence. All of it is impermanent. Just keep instructing your mind, not certain, not sure. Absolutely all mental phenomena are uncertain. Don't forget this point. If the mind is unsettled, that is uncertain. If the mind is peaceful, that is likewise uncertain. Don't grasp either state. Don't take any of these conditions as real. Consciousness is impermanent. Have you heard this before? Have you studied this? What will you do about it? Tranquility is not permanent. Agitation is not permanent. So how will you practice? What view will you take of these things? If you have right understanding, then you will recognize these conditions of tranquility and agitation as unsure things. If your mind becomes peaceful, how many days will that last? If it's disturbed, how many days will that last? Just keep saying Not certain. I think the important point here is we're often happy to practice um, and understand Anicca when things are um, going unpleasantly. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, okay, this will pass. No big deal. <laughs> but it's equally important to notice that things pass when they're pleasant. You know, we have to, um, we can't pick and choose what we're going to decide <laughs> to notice is impermanent. We need to notice that all um, phenomena that arise pass away, that all of it is uncertain. But it's not about thinking about it. I don't want to encourage you all to, um, you know, tomorrow be thinking, oh, I have to notice how this arises and I have to notice how this passes away and, and to think about it. We're not trying to understand on the level of thought and conception. We're trying to um, understand on the level of just seeing moment after moment arising and passing away. It's not intellectual. And you can get it at any moment. I, mean, I remember the first time that I really got this deeply. I turned a doorknob. That's what I did. You know, it doesn't have to be in your sitting practice. It doesn't, you know, you just, if you just keep going, you know, it's like, wow, so one moment it just hits you deeply. Wow, this moment's gone. Every moment, you know, comes, goes, gone. Another good way to practice and learn about anicca is to practice under difficult conditions. Um, it's, it's actually too nice here sometimes because we, sometimes here we have this assumption that um, it would be better to try to control things, that that would be a more efficient way of um, getting happiness than trying to <laughs> make peace with things as they are and as they change. But it's actually uh, difficult situations in practice can actually... Um, inspire us to uh, to have to make peace with change. Like, um, back to Asia again, and not to give Asia a bad rap, but in Asia, there is less, usually less of a sense that we can control our environment and more of a sense that we have to make peace with it. And in that way, it's a great place to practice. As I mentioned in one of my talks, I think when um, I was in Burma last February, you know, you wouldn't know when the music would come. And so if you're going to be reactive to the music, you see how much you're going to suffer. You know, if your happiness is dependent on the music not being there, you see that you're going to suffer. So there was the music, and then um, on my little nice little cootie, exposed cootie, there was a construction project right um, down below me. So... It was great practice to see if the construction project could be fine, just change. Sometimes it was there, sometimes it wasn't. That's a Nietzsche. Then after a while, they started another construction project in front of it, so there were two construction projects going on. Better practice. Everything you think is ruining your practice, that can teach you about a Nietzsche, about uncontrollability. So whether it's the yogi next to you who has a cold or the yogi in your hall who slams their door or the yogi who walks too fast or the yogi who walks too slow, um, whatever it is, these can all teach you about anicca and uncontrollability. They can be your teachers. So don't think about it. Promise? (laughs) <laughs> don't, don't think tomorrow I have to see every arising and every passing away just keep going you'll see it <laughs> you can't miss it
Eckhart Tolle, a rather um, uh, becoming a popular, I don't know what kind of teacher he is. He's not, a, he's not Buddhist. He's something. Um, <laughs> he said, a Buddhist monk once told me, all I have learned in the 20 years that I've been a monk, I can sum up in one sentence. All that arises passes away. This I know. Pretty succinct, huh? All that arises passes away. How far can this freedom go, this freedom of understanding Anicca deeply? In the shorter discourse on the destruction of craving, a deva asks the Buddha, wants to know how in brief a bhikkhu is liberated. And the Buddha describes a mind that understands Anicca. When a bhikkhu has heard that nothing is worth adhering to, he directly knows everything. Whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant or painful, or neither unpleasant nor pleasant, he abides contemplating impermanence in these feelings. Contemplating thus, he does not cling to anything in this world. When he does not cling, he is not agitated. When he is not agitated, he personally attains nibbana. It can take us all the way, he or she. So the importance of understanding change, of making peace with change, and thereby developing equanimity, is reflected in the Buddha's last words. His last teaching pointed to understanding change as a path to liberation. He said, All conditioned things arise and pass away. Work out your liberation with diligence. Let's sit for a couple minutes. All conditioned things arise and pass away. Work out your liberation with diligence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.